Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about technology, power, society, and what it means to be human in the age of information. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess, and in this episode, we explore the topic of robot empathy. Have you ever seen a robot and called it cute? Have you ever seen a drone and felt afraid? Have you ever apologized to Siri or yelled at your Roomba to get out of the way? Have you ever named your car? I know I certainly have. (laughs) Our relationships with robots are complex and messy, so to explore this topic, we interview Kate Darling, a leading expert in robot ethics and a research specialist at the MIT Media Lab. Kate researches the near-term effects of robotic technology, with a particular interest in law, social, and ethical issues. And if you're listening to this episode uh, right the day that it releases, happy Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving week, I suppose, to our uh, U.S. listeners. And we have a lot to be grateful for uh, at the Radical AI podcast, including this specific interview, which was a long time coming. Jess and I have both been big fans of Kate for God, going on like a year now individually. And so it was just like, uh, it was one of those dream come true moments of just being able to sit down with someone who has really, you know, defined this field of robot uh, human interaction and also robot ethics. So we are so excited to share this interview with all of you today. We are on the line today with Dr. Kate Darling. Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And today we are talking about robots. Um, And that's very exciting to me because I have been uh, going over to a friend's house recently and they have this little Roomba and they have put these little um, eyes on the Roomba and they're very uh, amused every time the Roomba kind of comes out and does its cleaning thing, and they have a whole name for this Roomba. And uh, I'm just curious, from your perspective, what is going on there? Why do we call our robots by their names or create names for them? And uh, is that wrong? Is that bad? Is that good? How do we make sense of that? Whoa, that's a big question. Is that bad? Is it good? (laughs) Jumping right into it. So yes, people love to name their Roombas, whether or not they have googly eyes on them, but I'm sure the magic of googly eyes really helps. Um, We were just talking about this grocery store robot that is in all of the grocery store chains in um, uh, the stop and shop chains in the, in the East coast on the, in the U S now called Marty. And um, Marty was developed to be a very, practical device kind of like the Roomba it you know it'll just scan the floor for any spills or anything that's that's hit the floor and it does its job pretty well just like the Roomba it's a very single task robot but they slapped some googly eyes on it and so now everyone calls it Marty and anthropomorphizes it (laughs) projects life onto it Um, so googly eyes help but robots are just really interesting artifacts in that they tend to um, tap into this biological response that we have to moving things in our environments. Um, We're very physical creatures and robots move around in our physical space in a way that feels autonomous to us. And so, you know, aside from the fact that we love to, you know, humanize anything from, you know, cats, to you know the pet rock craze that we had in the 70s where people had pet rocks and of course slap googly eyes on anything and people will anthropomorphize it but uh, even beyond that robots with their physical movement really tap into some deep biological tendency in us to perceive life in in these um artifacts so there's some you know there's some research behind that there's Uh, There's a lot of anecdotes like I know from iRobot that over I think almost 85% of people name their Roombas. Um, So yeah, even the Roomba, even just a disc that roams around the floor (laughs) to clean it that doesn't have any particular, it doesn't have a face unless you make one. It doesn't, 
act like an animal. It doesn't perceive you or know the difference between you and a chair, but people will empathize with it and name it and feel bad for it when it gets stuck and clean up for it. So so maybe that's actually a good uh, place to start, a uh, slightly better place than what is the morality of robotics in the 21st century? Um, that what, where do you draw the line of what a robot is and what it isn't? Like, do you consider your cell phone a robot or is there like a, a threshold uh, that a robot has to cross? Well, there's no good definition of robot. So there's no universal one or one that even, I mean, it kind of depends on for what purpose you're trying to define it and for what audience, every community has their own definition. Um, that's true for a lot of definitions, but it's particularly true for robots where the definition has kind of changed over time. It used to be that a robot was anything kind of new that automated something that people weren't familiar with. And then, you know, after a while, it just turns into a dishwasher or a thermostat or, you know, whatever, um, whatever, or a vending machine, you know, whatever the, the newest gadget is. And we still tend to do that a little bit, but roboticists tend, and I, you know, I tend to work with the roboticists. So I, I like their definition. They tend to view robots as anything physical that um, can sense its environment, can kind of think about and make a decision based on what it is sensing, and then act on its environment. Now, that gets really messy when you try to drill down on those terms, because basically a cell phone does all of that. A cell phone is a physical thing. It can sense its environment. It can like vibrate or make light or whatever, and so technically act on its environment. But none of us would call, none of in, the, in robotics, none of us would call a cell phone a robot. So it's not a perfect definition, um, but yeah, uh, that's that's the best I've got for you. See, I'm a little bit biased because I'm one of those people who um, likes to name my car and personify my succulents and apologize to Siri or Alexa. So uh, I have uh, a certain uh, opinion and attitude towards uh, bots and of course, like physical robots, however we're defining that too. And I'm curious, Kate, do you have a robot that you interact with that you act a certain way towards? Or how do you act towards robots? Oh, totally. Oh yeah, I totally do that. Um, it's, yeah, I can't pretend to be, you know, an unbiased scientist. I totally anthropomorphize all of the robots in my home. Um, my child does, and I very much encourage that. So, um, yeah, so the and and one of the first like robots I bought that I really viewed as a robot was this baby dinosaur robot called a Pleo that's super cute and makes all of these lifelike movements and sounds and kind of wants you to pet it and um yeah, I I have 5 of them at this point and I treat them like pets and I've named them all and feel bad for them when you know something happens to them. So, yep. Yep, I do that too. So why do you do that? Uh, this is some of the research that you've done, of course, but why do you think that you do that? You mean because I know how the robot works and I do it anyway? I mean, this this is, yeah, this is like well known in, in kind of the robotics community too, that like even roboticists who have built the entire thing themselves with their own hands and programmed it to like follow your gaze or whatever, you know, social cues the robot gives they know exactly what it's doing and they still like respond when the robot swivels toward them because we have this like i said biological like it's this it, it seems evolutionary it seems like we can't really turn it off we respond to agents in this social way especially agents that can communicate with us physically we just respond to those social cues automatically so yeah even the roboticists even I, who know how the robots work, um, yeah, we just love to do this. We are such social creatures at heart. So is that different, say, when Jess talks to her succulents versus when, like, we put googly eyes on a Roomba? Is that like a, is it a different kind of, like, substance or thing? Or is it all just kind of, like, the same way that I might talk to, like, a dog that I own? Is, is that, like, the same thing that's happening, maybe even, like, neurologically is what's happening when I talk to a robot? That's a really good question. So anthropomorphism has a bunch of different theories for what causes it and you know what factors can enhance it. 
um, I kind of view it as a spectrum and where, you know, anthropomorphizing your succulent, that, that a lot of people do that, right? We, we are such social creatures that we will talk to our plants and, you know, anthropomorphize our plants. But if you then add additional things, like if you put googly eyes on the succulent or if the succulent is moving around in a way that isn't just blowing in the wind, but actually appears to have agency, then I think that enhances that even more. So there's a lot of different factors and robots tend to be this perfect cocktail of all of those factors where they're more than just a stuffed animal. They're more than just a car. They can also, you know, move and respond to you and give these social cues kind of intentionally that really kind of as Sherry Turkle, a MIT psychologist, likes to say, really pushes our evolutionary buttons. So one of the things that I at least see as a difference between succulents and robots is that one of them tends to look much more human than the other in the way that we've chosen to design them, uh, at least based off the succulents that I've seen. <laughs> uh, so I'm wondering, why is it that way? Why do we design our robots to look like humans when we could make them look like anything? That is a good question. Well, so one reason that people design them to look like humans or have some human attributes is because we respond more strongly to cues that we recognize. But what people often don't understand is that the robot doesn't have to look just like a humanoid robot from Westworld or you know Blade Runner for us to respond that way. In fact, that's sometimes counterproductive because if it looks too much like a human, and it doesn't behave exactly like a human, then it kind of disappoints your expectations and will either creep you out or just make you feel disappointed by its performance. Like with Sophia, which is this humanoid robot that's gotten a lot of attention recently, um, who's just basically a walking puppet, <laughs> but, <laughs> but people are fascinated by it. But in social robotics, some of the design principles are more like um, what animators do. So the animators can take anything, a teapot, a bunny rabbit, um, a succulent, and they can put human emotion or movement into it enough so that you recognize the cues, but it doesn't have to look human. You can still see that it's a desk lamp or a succulent or whatever. But in, in doing so, they've like honed the art of creating something that's even better than humans in some ways, like much cuter. And so that's where, where really successful social robot design lands. Um, but I totally agree with you that like recreating humans is a really boring goal and it I always am a little bit disappointed that there are so many humanoid robots both in in you know being designed but also you know in science fiction when really we should see so many more different form factors. It just makes a lot more sense to me that we should be creating something new. So what are some of the, the trends and I guess robot design that you're seeing? And then we can kind of bridge to maybe some of the implications um, of that. But are we seeing more like humanoid robots coming on the market? Are we seeing more folks like uh, Marty that are just kind of really tall and scare some folks, myself included? Um, like what are we seeing out in the field right now? Well, there's a variety. So I think that in social robotics, um, there's still a lot of humanoid form factors, but a lot of them are don't look too much like a human. They look more like a like a robot as you would imagine it, like an alien or if if it doesn't look too human, there there's a lot of humanoids for like art and entertainment purposes. Um, and then there's a bunch of people developing humanoid robots not for social purposes, but because uh, we've you know we have a world that's built for humans and they're like, well, if a robot needs to be able to function in this environment, it has to be able to have a human shape in order to open doors and walk up and down stairs and go down corridors and whatever. Um, I really disagree with that. I do think that we lean a little bit too heavily towards creating humanoid robots, which are very expensive and difficult to create. And it doesn't make a lot of sense given that we can use wheels, we can make robots that climb walls given that we should have infrastructure that accommodates things like wheelchairs and strollers and, and uh, you know, not, not every human walks on two legs either. So we, we should be thinking a little bit more outside of the box on that. So I, I do think, um, you know, there is, there are, there are a lot of different form factors out there, but I think we still lean a little bit too heavily in that science fiction humanoid direction. And what is that, design choice mean for us as humans interacting with these 
social agents, as you're calling them. Is it better that they're designed like humans and we have greater trust for them? Or should we nix the human element and just treat them like machines? What are the implications of either side of those? That's a great question. So the implications kind of depend a little bit on what you're using the robot for. Um, so I mentioned like the, the practical implications of designing something that looks too human and disappointing people's expectations that just like from a practical standpoint, doesn't make a lot of sense. But if you're creating robots that people relate to and trust, like say, say you are following like a Pixar esque design and you're creating robots that people find very appealing and empathize with, um, what are the implications of that? <laughs> it depends. There are actually some really, really cool use cases for getting people to develop an emotional connection with a robot in health and education. So we're seeing robots that are able to engage children with autism in ways in, that we haven't seen previously. So there's, they might become a new, new therapeutic tool um, that works differently from an animal or a human. Um, or you know a, a, another type of toy. It's just a, a new kind of um, interactive experience for kids that can help them with certain skills. Um, and not just uh, children with autism, like there's a lot of uh, educational stuff that's being explored, whether robots can be a tool for teachers because they're so engaging um, to kids and can help engage them in learning in, in ways that you know, might help a teacher with a broader curriculum. There's also therapy robots um, being used, like the Paro Baby Seal, that is kind of an animal therapy replacement in contexts where we can't use real animals. It's very soft and fluffy and responds to touch and gives you the sense of nurturing something. I, the first time I held one, I was like, can I take this home with me, please? And they're very, they're very adorable. Um, and, you know, some people are worried about this. They say, oh, you know, we don't want to be replacing teachers and, and um, human caregivers and caretakers with these robots. But I actually think that these robots are really good supplemental tool. And so long as we're using them as such, there's huge potential there. But where I see kind of more of an issue is if we're using kind of what, what is a very persuasive technology, um, to manipulate people's behavior um, or their emotions in ways that don't benefit the person interacting with the robot, but benefit someone else, <laughs> the people who designed the robot or you know, corporate interests. If, if this is being used to advertise or collect more data than anyone would ever willingly enter into a database or um, to you know, compel people to buy in-app purchases or you know, whatever, it, we've, we have a long history of coercion through persuasive design from, you know, casinos to, you know, modern apps. So social robots could be used as a tool for that. And, and that's something that I find much more concerning than the question of whether the, the baby seal robot is going to replace someone. And at least in my experience, we're living in this world with a lot of narratives about robots um, and a lot of, so on one hand, we have like this anthropomorphic which I can never say that word correctly. And then on the other hand, we have like this, almost this fear that's happening. Like robots are coming to take our jobs. Robots are coming to just this real deep uh, feeling of replacement or fear of replacement. And so we have these competing narratives. And I think sometimes it's hard to separate um, the reality from either the hype, but also from the dystopic uh, view of everything. And I'm wondering, um, because it sounds like what you're saying is that there's also some real things that we should fear or maybe design around um, or avoid in our design of, of robots in terms of coercion. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what that reality is or if there's any examples. Yeah, so one of my pet peeves about how we generally talk about robots is we have a lot of assumptions, some of which are influenced by science fiction and pop culture, some of which are influenced by our anthropomorphism and our constant comparison of robots to ourselves. And so there is a lot of fear of replacement, like you said, the robots are coming to take our jobs, the robots are going to replace our, you know, sex partners or our teachers. Um, it, it's 
that that seems to be the entire conversation or there's like you know the public intellectuals who are like not only are the robots coming to replace us they're coming to destroy us all artificial super intelligence is a grave danger to humanity and i don't mean to sound too i think it's great that people are worried about some things because i do think we should be thinking critically about new technologies but i do think some of these concerns are a little bit misplaced and they tend to distract from some of the real things that we should be concerned about and this this replacement fear is really um i think driven by some moral panic rather than actual technology and and the developments that are happening i don't really see robots coming to replace us anytime soon artificial intelligence is very different from human intelligence the skill sets are completely different i'm not saying that labor markets won't get disrupted and that that won't cause a lot of pain or require a lot of um intervention but uh, yeah, this whole replacement fear does seem to be a little bit sci-fi driven. So I would really f prefer that we focus on some of the things that are happening or going to happen. I mean, I know that you all have explored a lot of issues on this podcast related to, you know, bias in AI and, you know, facial recognition and a lot of some of the problematic uses of AI that are popping up and um, I think are much, much greater concern than artificial superintelligence at this point in time. And then there's also, yeah, just like the privacy and data security and the emotional coercion aspect that I foresee becoming an issue in the near future. I don't see too many examples of it right now. Um, I don't know, uh, Woody Hartzog has a paper about unfair and deceptive robots where he gives some examples of, for example, Twitter bot, uh, Tinder bots that will like, um, they'll flirt with you on Tinder and then they'll try to sell you something. Uh, and so I think that that's just like a very, very minor version of what is to come as social robots become more part of people's lives and people start relating to them emotionally. You know, there's no doubt in my mind that companies are gonna try to use that in any way that they can. And I think that there's some very blatant things that people will reject. Like people don't like to be manipulated, especially not by anything that's interacting with them socially. But I think that it could be done in a really subtle way that people aren't totally aware of. And that really worries me. And it also worries me that like we're already seeing this. So there was this robot dog called the Ibo that um, came out in the 90s and was super popular in Japan and also in the US somewhat. And um, Sony ended up discontinuing the IBO, I think in the early 2000s. And then they pulled tech support for the remaining IBOs a few years ago. And the people who still had these robot dogs as part of their families were really upset that their dogs were basically gonna die because there was no more tech support. And um, there even started to be some funerals for them in Japan, some Buddhist ceremonies. Uh, I, I believe there's a temple that still holds these Buddhist um, ceremonies for the, for the ibos that can't be repaired anymore. So it's interesting to see people develop such a strong connection to their robots that, you know, they, they mourn them like a, they would a pet. Um, but then with the new version of the ibo that just came out, <laughs> Sony launched a new, uh, new ibo. It's not cheap. And now it's linked to a cloud subscription service that after three years, you need to pay a monthly fee for or a yearly fee for, but they haven't set the price yet for that. And I don't like, I'm not gonna assume that Sony has any like ill will to exploit people's emotional connections, but they're very well positioned to do it. If this IBO turns out to be as popular as the last one, then they could just set the price according to people's emotional attachment to their robots, right? Instead of according to whatever costs Sony has to cover. So I think we're gonna see some of that in the future. Um, if you think of the movie Her, did you, did you see Her? The Spike Jones movie, it's really about love, not AI or anything, but it's, you know, the short version is this guy who falls in love with an AI assistant and this doesn't happen in the movie, but what if the company had suddenly like issued a mandatory software upgrade and been like, now it costs $10,000 if you want her to keep living uh, and, and continue talking to her. Like he would have paid that in an instant. So it's just, we, we sometimes put a little bit too much agency on the 
robots or on the AI uh, itself, as in, oh, it's coming to take our jobs, it's coming to do X, Y, Z. But really, we should be thinking about the incentives of the people who are creating it and what power they will have um, in this new world. See, it's interesting because I, I feel like when I've heard about the fears of robots being turned off or deactivated it comes from these like hollywood dystopic films that you were referencing where like the robot has gained consciousness and to deactivate them would be to like quote air quote here kill them um and we have fears of doing that and being like the the robot gods and what I'm hearing from you is that actually that's not as much the fear as it is just our connection with them and our turning them off, even if we understand that they're just a pile of metal with a little bit of software in them. It's actually our connection with them that we are afraid to deactivate. So what do we do with that? How do we design robots in the future to help us with that issue? Because that has nothing to do with complex software, right? That has everything to do with like our humanness. Oh, totally. <laughs> So I like to make the analogy to animals because it shows that, well, so first of all, you're right. I think that we're going to face this question long before we develop robots that can, you know, have any sort of consciousness. People are already going to feel bad about turning them off, certain robots, or, you know, treating them in a certain way. Um, but animals, like looking at our historic relationship with animals also shows that even if we develop conscious robots that might not mean much, <laughs> It, depending on what robot it is like there are animals that are perfectly conscious and that feel pain and we don't we don't care we eat our chicken nuggets like <laughs> but our our you know pet dog we care a lot about we wouldn't want our pet dog to be turned into nuggets and at least not in america and um so it's very it's culturally driven it's a, we're driven by our emotions if you look at the history of animal rights we've only protected the animals that we care about or the ones that are cute it's always been all about ourselves. So I think that's interesting. And then how do we deal with that? How do we you know, develop robots that can help us with that? Well, I don't know, because like, you don't wanna throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Having these emotional connections to robots, just like having emotional connections to animals um, could be really useful and it can, it can help people with loneliness. It can help people therapeutically. Um, there's no, inherent reason that I think it's a bad thing. Um, even I, I even used to argue uh, that, you know, that we have some stories already of soldiers becoming really emotionally attached to the bomb disposal units that they work with. And I used to say, oh, we need to figure out how to design these robots so that they won't become emotionally attached to them because we don't want them, you know, risking their lives to save the robot or, you know, doing anything inefficient on a battlefield. But then I read more about the history of animals in war and realized that animals were actually such a source of comfort to soldiers in a really you know, stressful, traumatic situation that actually having that bond, um, they would develop very strong bonds with the animals. And then it, it's kind of like a, it's better to have loved and lost situation. Um, so, it, you know, you don't want to just discourage people from anthropomorphizing robots because there is so much benefit that we get out of it as the social creatures that we are and because I don't think we can prevent it. Like there's people name their Roombas. You're not going to be able to stop people from anthropomorphizing the robots that we have. And so I think we just need to be very aware that this is happening and be very aware of which situations um, can enhance that and then kind of work with it because it's not going away. <laughs> So, Kate, let's stay on the topic of uh, animals and the analogy to animals for a second, because we know that you have a uh, book coming out soon about exactly that topic. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about maybe what the, the thesis of the book or what you're exploring in that book is. Sure. The, well, the book comes out in April 2021, uh, I think April 20th. There's already an Amazon page, which I'm very excited about. I think only my mom has ordered it so far, though. Um, it's called, so the book is called The New Breed, and um, it looks at our history of using animals for work, weaponry, companionship, and what we can learn from that history as we integrate robots in the future. Uh, because, you know, we were just talking about animal rights and our emotional relationships to animals. I think there are a lot of parallels there that show that this fear of, being, of robots replacing human relationships um, 
also existed to some extent when pets first started becoming a big thing, uh, but didn't bear out. Like it turns out we are capable of many different types of social relationships. And it seems just more apt to compare robots to animals because they aren't, they don't perceive the world like humans. They aren't, they don't have human intelligence and the form factors aren't necessarily like humans, but we've already dealt with this whole range of other non-humans and had social relationships with them. But it goes beyond just social relationships. I mean, we've used animals for all sorts of work <laughs> in the past and we've partnered with them, not because they do what we do, but because their skill sets are so different from ours. And same with robots. Robots have the ability to sense things that we can't see or recognize patterns in data or do kind of grunt work that we aren't able to do as quickly or with as much strength. So. I just think the comparison makes so much sense. So the book has all these really cool stories about like how we've used dolphins in the military as echolocation devices and how we're using underwater drones for the same tasks today and how we used carrier pigeons for thousands of years. And now, you know, we're starting to use pigeons to deliver medicine to remote areas. And so kind of showing that instead of being this one-to-one -one replacement for human jobs, robots can actually supplement us in, in really cool ways. Um, and just trying to move away from this replacement aspect that we talked about before, because I do think that that's kind of this, it lends itself to this technological determinism. Oh, the robots are coming to take our jobs. Oh, the robots are coming to replace our social relationships. Then we don't even think about how to design or build or integrate them differently if we're already assuming that they're going to take our jobs. So I, I really think that a different analogy opens us up to more possibilities. And that's what I hope that the book does. Yeah, I'm wondering in your research about animals, was there a similar narrative that animals were coming to replace humans? Or is this kind of a, a new thing with um, robots? I didn't encounter anything in like the work realm. Although I'm sure someone like someone's going to email me after they hear this podcast and be like, oh, well, actually, and I'll be like, Dang, that should have gone in the book. Anyway, I I think in the on the in the social relationship category, yeah, there were psychologists who were like, oh, you know, becoming emotionally attached to your dog if you're a lonely person could be pathological because it's much easier uh, to have a relationship with a dog than humans. It's going to take away from your your human relationships. Um, and yeah, that pretty quickly became not really uh, a viable position anymore. Now that, you know, every household <laughs> has a dog and, and um, we're actually glad when, you know, our uncle who is lonely gets a dog. Like, obviously we want him to have more human contact, but at least he has a dog. We're not going to take the dog away. Um, so in, in that realm, I found a lot of stuff. In the work realm, I looked more at, you know, people's concerns about machines and automation in the past. And like, for example, how the Luddites got like a really bad rap for um, the Luddites. So the Luddites are, um, Luddite is now used as a derogatory term to describe people who are afraid of new technology. But uh, in fact, it was this movement of weavers led by um, uh, Ted Ludd um, during the uh, Industrial Revolution, and they they were protesting automated looms, and they set a bunch of equipment on fire, and I think a bunch of them got arrested for it. Um, but what they were protesting wasn't the machines. They they weren't actually anti-technology. They were protesting the fact that the uh, factory owners were using this technology as an excuse to gut worker rights. And I think that that actually still applies today where if we focus too much on this idea that robots are taking the jobs we don't focus enough on what decisions corporations are making in terms of how jobs are being removed or moved around and i think we really need to be focusing on the corporations who are who are making the decisions because there are many different ways to integrate technology into you know the labor market or into your labor processes and we should be criticizing the choices rather than so criticizing the technology itself. On this note of itself. integrating technology and, and robots, I guess, into our daily lives, I'm going to stick with this animal metaphor for just one more moment. So bear with me because, um, and warning, this is going to take a little bit of a dark spin. But when I think about animals and 
bringing animals and domestic animals into our life, I think about what you were saying earlier, and there's like an inequality there, right? Like we we um, think so sincerely about our dogs and our cats, but then we have these slaughterhouses with certain animals that are for meat production, and they are just like totally separate realms of thought for the way that we treat these animals. And a lot of animals are abused and misused, and I think about the same thing happening with robots in some ways. And some people really do abuse and misuse robots. And there's certain things like, you know, sexual exploitation and um, just like blatant. Um, most of it, I think, comes, at least from what I've seen, with like sexual abuse and misuse. And so I'm wondering, do you see these problems being an issue with the way that we adopt robots in the future? Is this a reason for us to be hesitant about bringing robots into our lives? What, what have you seen there? Well, I do see some open questions. I, I'm hesitant to like compare different rights movements to each other. So like, I don't want to in any way say that, you know, robot rights are equivalent to the animal rights movement, given that, you know, animals are sentient and they can feel and they have that's just a very different history as well each rights movement has its own kind of history and context um and it was it, oh god it especially annoys me when <laughs> robot rights philosophers compare it directly like make it direct equivalence to slavery because that's just not appropriate um but i do think that people's behavior towards robots does raise some questions and there's similar questions to what was raised in the beginning around animal rights, um, because in the early days in the West, at least, when uh, some people were campaigning for animal rights, they realized that even though people are starting to empathize with animals because pets are becoming more of a thing among kind of the upper classes, they thought it would be ridiculous to you know pass any laws that would protect the animals from brutal treatment because that would go too far like what kind of precedent would that set is they're just animals after all um so they had to make a different argument and the argument that they ended up making was that it makes for cruel people to behave in a violent way towards animals and that really caught on, especially back in the day, because it had a hint of classism as well. You know, the the lower classes in the cities beating their donkeys. You know, we need to teach them better behavior and therefore we will pass animal protection legislation. So it was really in the beginning all about us. And I think that there's a similar question to be asked about robots. Like, what does it say about people if they're willing to be very violent towards something that responds in a lifelike way? And there's some indication in research that there is um, a link between people's behavior towards life like robots and their, their tendencies for empathy, which tells us that maybe at least um, it's an indicator or a red flag or might say something about a person. It doesn't tell us whether it's desensitizing, like whether as a child, if you beat up a lot of robots, you turn into you know, a brutal adult. Um, that one's a little more complicated and it also has parallels to the violence in video games question, although now it's on a physical level and we know that there's a difference between physical things and things on a screen. So it's an, it's kind of a new question, but also looking at some of the research on animals and children, it's really hard to establish like clear evidence for whether it changes people's behavior rather than just telling us something about people's tendencies. Um, and, but I do think it's a question that we need to ask and we need to ask sooner rather than later. And ideally we would have some sort of evidence-based policy because you already see, and you mentioned this, some sexual, you know, quote unquote misconduct. Uh, there are child-sized, you know, sex dolls. There's the question, question of virtual child pornography, which different countries have come down on different sides on, whether that's okay or not. Um, and, you know, if we have people wanting to, you know, ha have these, this like deviant behavior and, and wanting to perform it with robots, is that a healthy outlet for this behavior? Or is it something that just, you know, perpetuates it or normalizes it further? And we just have no idea what direction it goes, but people are already calling to like ban sex robots. So instead of like succumbing to the moral panic, if we could just find some sort of evidence so that we can create evidence-based policy, that would be really, 
really good. I was thinking a lot about, as a child of the 90s, um, I was thinking a lot about the violent video game comparison. Um, and I still I still struggle with that. I think I actually struggle with that more as an adult because as a child, I was like, don't tell me what to do. I want to go play my video game, that kind of thing. Um, but but there's, there's something real about like the media that we consume and then how that impacts how we act out in the world. And then there's something different about something physical being in front. Like it's not just something on a screen, it's something embodied. Um, and is that what you've seen in your research at that level of like embodiment, whether it's in like anthropomorphizing or in this violence or uh, in any other examples? Is it is the embodiment part of what makes this kind of a different thing? Oh, it totally is. So not in my research specifically, but in the field of human robot interaction, there's like by now a pretty large body of research showing how much embodiment matters. Like we we empathize more with robots when they're embodied, we follow their directions, we respond more to them. Like it enhances the anthropomorphism, it enhances compliance, it enhances everything because we're such social creatures. And But it also like as games get more physical with you know VR and AR and those lines start getting blurred, we, just, we don't know what that means either. Um, so I do think it's a new question, but then also we haven't resolved the violence in video game question. I mean, like you said, it's, and it, it's a really tricky one too, because every new media format and in robots included, but also in video games, comic books, everything creates this moral panic and you have parents and teachers, or you have the NRA blaming video games for like school shootings. So there's a lot of rhetoric that kind of ends up influencing you know politics and legislation uh and the research itself tends to be totally inconclusive um we, we still don't know the answer to the violence in video games thing see that's interesting because video games have been out for a long time and this issue of violence in video games has been out for a long time and so when you're talking about creating evidence-based policy it seems like that didn't really happen in that domain and so if this is something that we want to do for robots how do you see us figuring that out how can we how can we fix this problem yeah i mean well when i say it's inconclusive it's not that it's not that we haven't tried right so people have tried and there have been like some studies that establish that video games can maybe influence certain types of behaviors a little bit. Um, so I think that we have to try and we have to see, it could be that we get a clearer answer because it's physical, because it's a new question. Um, and it could be that it's just too difficult because it's a really, it's really easy to link people's empathy to their behavior, but it's harder to do like a longer term study that really shows a change in behavior because there's so many different factors that can influence that, that it's really difficult to study. Um, but I would hope that we would try instead of just assuming something, or at least that we try and we can say it's inconclusive rather than just, again, assuming something based on moral panic. This topic just of robots in general is really interesting and also overwhelming to me because there's just, as I'm hearing you talk, there are so many different contexts that these robots are, are used in. Even the concept of robot, right? The definition of robot is kind of at play right now. Um, and so I think it makes it really hard when we think about the ethics of robotics and especially the ethics of designing robots. Um, but with, with all that said, with all those different contexts that we know are out there, uh, if you were to maybe give advice or uh, speak specifically to people who are designing robots right now, um, thinking more in the ethical lens, like what advice would you give? That's a big question. It's an excellent question. Um, I think, well, first and foremost, it's, <laughs> it's really interesting to me to watch robots kind of move into shared spaces and to see that some designers don't think at all about the fact that people will anthropomorphize the robot or treat it like a living thing, even though it's a machine. And so you see a lot of silly design decisions that could be avoided. Um, but like on an, on an ethical um, level, ugh, where to even start? Um, we kind of need to revamp design processes from the ground up because there are so many issues that get entangled in technology design, whether that's, you know, with 
with robots specifically or social robots specifically, you see if people make the design look too humanoid, I mean, we talked a little bit about why that's not practical and why that's boring, but also it can reinforce a lot of biases, like stereotypes, gender and racial stereotypes. And um, that's just not necessary in my mind uh, and could be very easily avoided. But then there's, I mean, there's so much stuff. If we're talking about robotics in general, like, uh, you know, we've seen over and over again in the AI sphere, you know, these examples of, you know, search algorithms that reinforce gender or racial biases. You have um, AI issuing risk scores in courtrooms that are racially biased. You have hiring algorithms that disadvantage certain people. And it's just, um, there has to be, there has to be a different design process where technology isn't created by people of just certain, like with one worldview and one demographic. So design processes need to be more inclusive, but also they need to be more ethically informed. And we need to be thinking more deeply about what we use the technology for, because, you know, maybe we shouldn't be using AI for every, you know, effing thing in the world. Like, I know that it's like the new, you know, hot thing to do, but no, AI shouldn't be issuing risk scores in courtrooms right now and shouldn't be making decisions about people's lives. And so, you know, I think designers need to be thinking about that as well, because I used to think, oh, we'll just let the technologists build the technology and then, you know, the legal people will sort it out later. That's not how it works. The design decisions get set really early on. Everything becomes entrenched. You know, now that I work with the designers, I see it. So I think we just we need to revamp how technology gets built in general. And for those people who aren't roboticists or designers, but are just people who interact with technology in their daily lives, maybe it's just AI tech or they have their own robots. Um, what should what should they all do? Or I guess we all do. <laughs> should we continue to personify and fall in love with our robots and name them? Uh, or should we start to grow less attached to them and uh, put a wall up so that we don't fear their inevitable demise in the future? So I'm not opposed to the anthropomorphism. I think just like, you know, there was this period in animal science and animal research where anthropomorphism was poo-pooed and it was unscientific. And the, even the animal research community has moved away from that because first of all, you can't prevent it. People are going to do it. Even scientists are going to do it. But second of all, it is part of who we are and you can make just as many mistakes by ignoring that. So I think that anthropomorphism is not a bad thing, but I would like to see people become tech literate or at the very least, you know, things that we all can do very easily is think a little bit more about our assumptions about robots and whether we're just thinking in a science fiction way. Um, so I do think like the animal comparison really helps anyone really be like, oh, wait, I'm comparing robots to humans. What happens if I use this different analogy? Does my concerns still make the same sort of sense? Um, but also we can vote for people on both a local level but or a federal level who care about worker rights, who care about consumer protection, who care about privacy issues, and who understand the technology. Because I think that politically, um, so much of how, you know, how our political and economic systems set incentives for companies or anyone developing the technology, I think that is something that we sometimes forget we can all influence that. Kate, for anyone who is looking to engage in these conversations further, uh, looking to pre-order your book on Amazon or just find and connect with you online, where's the best place for them to go for that? Probably Twitter. I'm grok, G-R-O-K underscore on Twitter, which is a, a science fiction reference uh, from Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land, which is a terrible book and he's a terrible sexist author, but I have always liked the word. Um, so don't read his stuff, but find me on Twitter and <laughs> that's the easiest way to find me. And we'll be sure to include that link and many more in the show notes. But for now, Kate, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking with us about all of this today. Thank you. This is so much fun. 
again, we want to thank Kate Darling for coming on the show today for this wonderful conversation. And Dylan, let's start off with you. How are you feeling right now? I'm feeling great. Oh, good. <laughs> it's, it's, All right. Well, th- thanks for tuning in, folks. That's, right. that's, we'll, that's we'll all. We'll see you next week. Uh, no, it's 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 a it's a good week. It's a good week for me <laughs> personally. It's you know it's Thanksgiving. A lot of lot of good uh, good food and uh, and family and all of that. Um, but in terms of this conversation, which is probably what you were asking about, I was. Um, I, uh, I I really enjoy this conversation um, with Kate, and uh, it goes uh, really well with our conversation that we had uh, that we released at least a few weeks ago with Ryan Kahlo about robot law and this time we got a, a slightly different perspective on robot ethics and uh, robot morality which is actually um, I haven't published a lot in my PhD career but this is one of the few topics that I have published on um, and so it was just really uh, great to be able to to nerd out and uh, get Kate's perspective on um some of like the shoulds and and should nots and uh, how we as a society are increasingly being empathetic or putting robots in this new you know social location um for all of us and i don't know i just really appreciated her insight was there anything in particular that she brought up that uh, stood out to you Yeah, I mean, I think I mentioned it in, or you could probably see it in most of the questions that I asked, but I personify the heck out of like everything in my life. I'm one of those people. And so I feel like this conversation just hit home in so many ways for me. And it made me feel a lot more normal than I felt before, which is nice. And hopefully it did for some of the listeners too, because I mean, I can't be the only one out there who like names my car or my succulents, which I know I said like a million times in this conversation. And I think it's just crazy to me that there's in the future and probably the near future, there are going to be a lot of potentially social robots in our day-to-day lives. And it kind of makes me think of the movie iRobot a little bit where, I mean, unfortunately that was like a dystopic take on it, but I appreciate that Kate brings in this utopic angle about the future of robots and that they don't have to be something that's scary and foreboding and taking our jobs and our livelihoods, but that they can be something that actually supplements and and adds to our lives and enriches the things that, that we as humans need and that we can actually find in robots if we lean into that that social need and that uh, social emotion that we feel with them. Do you name your succulents differently (laughs) than you name, say your car or like your phone or something? Like, do you have different categories of nomenclature for each? Yeah, definitely. I mean, like a succulent would be something more like a, like a Rob, Mm -hmm. but like a, my car, Mm -hmm. he's like Barry. Um, Actually my, my new car is called Larry. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a nomenclature there. Right. Well, they seem to be both be just like standard male names. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems like the same nomenclature to me, but there might be a... <laughs> right. A That's true. I do. I mean, I'm the kind of person who would like name my dog Ben, though. Yeah. You know? Like, so I... <laughs> really, they just all just get like just male generic names is the... Yeah. Okay. That's... <laughs> and I think a lot of us fall into that, right? Like I got a dog recently and... Um, you know, I, I had to choose a name and a lot of the names that are out there for dogs are, uh, are male gen- generic male, like human names. Um, but, uh, I guess that's a good point though, is that it's no longer human. You know, you don't, it doesn't need to be human anymore. Yeah. So that's a powerful statement, Jess. Thank you. Um, but the, I think in, in Kate's conversation, you know, one of the examples she gave about that, uh, that robot at stop and shop uh, who is just like this, you know, is taller than I am and has these like a stop and shop being the uh, grocery chain that she referenced um, on the in the northeast of the United States and it has these giant eyes that they put on it. And originally it was supposed to pick up mess and things like that. But everyone's just terrified of it. And there's like a million blog posts out there about how people hate this robot so much. And I just think that's such a great like example of ways that the personification of Uh, robots or the uh, anthropomorphism that we put on robots can impact our relationship with it even before like the intellect like if we think about it right if we take a step back and we're like okay that thing doesn't it's not it's not really thinking there's no like ai involved with it it's not learning it's just like sitting there cleaning up messes um but uh the second you put eyes on it it's like oh man, I need to watch out for that thing. Like, I can't let my dog around that. I can't let, like, my kid around that. I'm, I'm terrified. Um, so it's like those, uh, how we design these 
uh, I was going to say design these creatures, right? We, even mm-hmm. that is problematic, but uh, we design these, these robots um, has, there are ramifications for how people interact with them. And I think it's like, it's not necessarily we're talking about empathy. We're talking about like perceived empathy that people put on these inanimate objects that we've called robots. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting, Dylan, because you you said that putting a googly eye on something might make people fear it or act differently in in this uh, feeling of, um, I guess, yeah, fear or maybe distrust of the robot. And my immediate reaction was, oh, there's googly eyes on it. I'm gonna look out for that robot now. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a name, and if it bumps into something, I'm gonna feel bad for it. And I caught you a few times where you were saying the robot who did this. And I catch myself all the time. Even earlier today, I was talking about Siri and I catch myself saying, oh, well, I was yelling at her. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I find super interesting is like, even when we're talking about things in the context of talking about personifying them, we are still like actively personifying them, even through just the language that we use to describe them. Yeah. It's uh, one thing I'm thinking about, which has, uh, we didn't talk about it all in this conversation, but it made me think about was, um, this concept of, uh, of disability studies and what disability studies would have to say about robot empathy, because uh, one of the critiques that disability studies brings to creation of, of things uh, of anything that's like human like is that we go to this one particular identification of what a human body looks like. Right. So it's like particular thing, like, you know, two eyes, two ears, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But not everybody, every person's body looks like that. So you go to this typical thing and then you design around it. And I wonder what a a disability studies critique of some of these robots, like even like how we design eyes, uh, how we design some of these human-like characteristics, maybe in these like typical ways, like quote unquote, right? I'm I'm making a lot of scare quotes here, but I think it's uh, important for us to think about, especially for if there's anyone out there who's doing the design work, right, on this stuff, um, to think about how that critique might might be uh, levied. So, you know, the the pros and cons, I guess, of of that robot um, empathy that we seem to have. Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of our conversation a while back with Dr. Miriam Sweeney, too, where we were talking about the personification of virtual uh, assistants and how there's a little bit of a catch-22 there where if you you know, make virtual assistants female voices, then we trust them more, but then we perpetuate stereotypes. And the same is definitely true for robots, too. I mean, you make a robot look a certain way, you probably can easily perpetuate stereotypes or cause harm with that. But there also might be a lot of good that can come of that, especially when it comes to the way that we interact with these systems and these bots, the ways that we trust them. I mean, there's just, there's a lot here and there's a lot of power in the language we use to describe them there's a lot of power in the decisions that go into designing them there's a lot of power in the ways in which we decide to interact with them in useful or harmful or abusive ways there's just there's a lot here (laughs) (laughs) there certainly is a lot here and and i think something we keep coming back to is that you know there are folks out there including in the engineering space for these robots who are like everything you just said are like, no, <laughs> you know, like there, there aren't, there aren't ethical considerations here. We're, we're really just trying to make it so that, you know, children are going to play with this Roomba, right? We're going to design this thing so that people use it, right? Th- these aren't ethical things. And I think what we're saying, and a little bit of what Kate might be saying or said in this conversation is that no, actually these design decisions have uh, real emotional um, ramifications, right? Like the, the way that we do these things matters. And so I think that's, is that correct, Jess? Am I paraphrasing what you just said? Yes. The way that we do these things matters. <laughs> <laughs> and for more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at RadicalAI.org. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Uh, we want to remind you all, especially those in the U.S. this week, uh, to have a happy Thanksgiving. And if you're not celebrating Thanksgiving for any number of reasons, we hope that you have a, a large amount of gratitude in uh, your life and you continue to seek that out. A reminder to catch our new episodes every week on Wednesdays, to join our conversation on Twitter at Radical AI Pod. And as always, Jess, stay radical. Yeah.
I think that last sentence I said in there could have summed up and wrapped up every single one of our episodes. What, that we do things and it matters? <laughs> the things that we do matter. Yeah. <laughs> that's why we make such a great podcasting team. Uh, that's right. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving, everyone.